podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, just before we get cracking into this week's episode, I wanted to jump on and mention our new support page. So as some of you may know, we're on a bit of a mission to increase accessibility to good quality management and career training. Um, and if you'd like to support us in this, you can go to www.worldofwork.io forward slash support to learn more. Hello, Mr. James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. It's another Friday. We're recording. We've been doing some good stuff. Uh, what's our episode about today, Jane? Well, today is one of our interview episodes, and we're going to be talking about organizational change. And we're going to be talking about that with Dr. Mark Hughes. Oh, nice. That's pretty interesting. What kind of stuff do we drill into, do you think? Well, I think we're going to try and look at the understanding the value of having a critical approach to considering managing organizational change. And we're also going to talk about the divide between or the divide or the, the difference between managing and leading change. Cool. Well, that sounds exciting. Let's get into that conversation. Okay, so here we are in the main body of, of this conversation today, and, and we're actually speaking to uh, Dr. Mark Hughes, and we're going to be speaking about organizational change and some some sort of critical thinking and theories around uh, organizational change and some of the models that are uh, most associated with it. Um, before we do that, though, Mark, would you be able to come in and say a little bit about yourself and your background, and I guess just introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, thank you, James, and, and thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Um, I'm an academic author. I specialise in organisational change, particularly managing and leading change. I've published textbooks, a monograph on the leadership of organisational change and academic journal papers. I worked at Brighton Business School from 1987 to 2019, which is a long time for a change specialist. There's um, some irony there somehow, yes. Yeah, there is a bit. <laughs> I, I worked there as what's called a reader in organisational change. When I wasn't doing my academic writing, though, I worked with external clients in public and private sector organisations. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, that's good. And, and it sounds like you're a good person to speak to about change. Um. Before we get too much into some of the theory and thinking about it, I think it would be good to start off kind of right at the beginning and, and just ask the question, what is organizational change? What do you mean by organizational change? Well, it's an odd question to ask a textbook author because we normally <laughs> take three or four chapters. <laughs> so, but e equally, I'm a great believer, both for practitioners and postgraduate students, in knowing what they're talking about. So I can see where the question's coming from. <laughs> One of my textbooks, I had the joy of defining my concept, which, which I loved because uh, to some extent I needed a, a definition that caught it. And so for anyone listening, I, I would say my interest is around attending to organizational transition processes at the level of individuals, groups and teams and organizations. So I like that notion that there's a sort of a register of approaches from the individual up to the organization and even up to sector and society. Uh, a couple of other thoughts that spring to mind. Sometimes when I'm doing workshops, there'll be people in the room and they'll identify as project managers. And I think for practitioners, they don't have any qualms about crossing over these boundaries. I think for academics, we do traditionally tend to be quite siloed. So there'll be some who specialise on project management, some on change management. Equally, innovation management and organisational development, each of those approaches has something to say. Um, does that answer your question, James? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think I like the the call out of individual team organization, and I'm I'm fascinated, and I don't know if today's the time for it about the link through sectoral or societal change as well. I, I think there, there's some some really good stuff in there. Um, and presumably, when we're talking about transitions within these areas at these different levels, we're looking at changing something from one current state into a future state. Is, is that fair in terms of either the way that we do things or the way that things feel? Is that a fair uh, yeah. analysis of that transition piece? It very much is. Um, I love my change literature. And one of the quotes that was um, a eureka moment for me was by somebody called Patrick Dawson, up at, a professor up at Aberdeen University. And he talked about managing change as moving from a known state to an unknown state. And even as I say it now, it's like, wow, managing change yeah. is like moving from a known state to an unknown state. So what excites me is, as you say, James, it is about that transition to some somewhere else different from where you were. 
but equally there's an element of uncertainty about that transition and I think that's quite exciting I think for people actually managing and leading it it can be quite challenging but I think we need to acknowledge that yeah I, I love that description actually yeah. I hadn't heard that before but the move from the known to unknown is um it is exciting and, and it brings with it some sort of romance in terms of a change that you're you're trying to do and and, and that's um that's pretty powerful do you do you think when people are looking to uh, lead change within this state, what sort of um, what sort of connection do you think they have with that unknown future state that they're aiming to move towards? Uh, do you do you think they envisage it in a specific way? Is it is it shaped? Is it fully pre-imagined? Where, where do you think they are in terms of that, that pre-creation of that unknown state? It's difficult to say. Um, what it, what I might touch upon as we talk is. Um, the distinction between managers and leaders, I think that can be problematic. I also think, though, the distinction between leaders and followers can be problematic in that, to some extent, that that unknown state, it needs to be shared. In terms of asking me about definitions, um, I came across a paper by somebody called Spicker, and he talked about uh, leadership as a perniciously vague concept. And I thought... (laughs) Yeah, you've got something there, mate. And this whole paper was just on that definitional issue. But I was doing a lot of writing around leadership, and it is a best practice to define your key term. And I came up with a definition that I think might be worth sharing because it speaks to what you just asked there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be great to hear it if you could, yeah. This is from um, somebody called J.C. Rost, who isn't often cited, uh, but he did a big review of the leadership literature. And he defines leadership as an influence relationship among leaders and collaborators who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. So once more, because this is key, leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and collaborators who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. So that was another of Mark's eureka moment. Yeah. The idea of you were asking about that that vision and where they're going to take the organisation, I think it needs to be mutual. It needs to be shared. And yeah. I think there needs to be a collaborative element. And one of my frustrations with a lot of what's been happening around leadership, it isn't always that way. It's There's a lot of that JDI just do it out there, and that frustrates me. Yes. The, um, the organisation that I, or, or an organisation that I used to work for had a leadership framework, which was... Um, uh, J-E-D-I with each thing standing for a, a separate thing and of course it was adopted internally colloquially as J-F-D-I was for leadership approach <laughs> and that's where we, you know that was that's where we ended up <laughs> um, yeah uh, so 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 I think there's some interesting stuff there in terms of leadership around the, the sort of mutuality and the blurring between leaders and followers and um co-definition of purpose and the direction that you're getting into what what attracted you to the overall field so so you know there's some nuance and leadership definition nuance and change um some excitement about the opportunities within this stuff what was it that brought all of that together in your life or something that you wanted to focus yes on? um obviously honesty is always the best policy um and two reasons remember i introduced myself saying i started out in 87 and, and worked at brighton through to 2019 yeah i actually lived through the era of managing change and then moving to leading change and that was part of the backdrop of my life so back in the late 80s we were working with managers who were increasingly becoming interested in managing change and a friend and colleague Tom Borner developed an MA in change management which ran from 95 to uh, let's see 2010 and it ran very successfully so perversely for myself um, normally an academic has an expertise and then they try and offer it as a course I was working peripherally on that course and I got more and more interested through working with practitioners yes. that interested them. And I slowly, over the decades, began to get more and more into it. Cool. I think the other candid disclosure I would make is, as an individual, and this might sound very perverse to anyone listening to this, I sometimes struggled with organisational change myself. So I envied my colleagues who sometimes seem to embrace it and really thrive on change. For me, it didn't come as easy as them. But all I would say is a little bit like sometimes a counsellor draws on their own counsel, their own experiencing yes. in their counselling to be more empathetic. I have a feeling that that perverse incentive, which drove me to write so many things, was 
why I got attracted to the field to come back to your question. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, it, does, a, it does. I always wonder if I'm going bad. No, 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 that's good. And and, and that, that sort of healer, heal thyself type of stuff is something that we see with a lot of people. Right. We see people get interested in this kind of stuff. Um, I've, got, I've got a bit of a side question for you. Um, and then I think I'm going to hand over for, to, to Jane for some. And I'm kind of jumping around a bit here. Um, when when we're looking at this sort of a blurring of leadership and, and of change and things like that, one of the one of the narratives that I've heard or, or been reading over the last years is that um, change is increasing, the pace of change is increasing, the volume of change is increasing, the complexity of the world's increasing. And and I guess I guess two questions. One, do you think that that's kind of true? And then two, what is the difference then between leadership and change, if that makes sense? Is is all leadership to some extent about change management or or what do you think? I know that's a, a, mu- a model of questions for you. It would be great if you could use your skills to decipher what I'm trying to ask and answer it. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm holding back. I, I don't want to do a lecture. And, uh, <laughs> um, so the first one is, is intriguing in that most of us would perceive being far more changed than there was. And I was saying I had this 30-year window to look at change as I began to learn and grow around change. And on one level, there does seem to be more change. But ironically, and I haven't got references to hand, but I've seen this done. Some academics like to go back and they go back 50, even 100 years, and they show literature which says the pace of change is increasing. It's getting more and more. And uh, so that sense we have of more and more changes, um, it certainly seems to be repeated um, uh, Drucker, one of the famous management theorists, um, there was a beautiful paper where some scholars went back and looked at his work. And every few years, he would say, the pace of change is increasing, we must be more. So it, it, in a way, it's a good starting point, whether or not it really is, some academics would actually question that. Um, coming back to your second question, that's where my head and heart have been for the last five years. Um in a succinct way, what happened was we had management. Management became discredited by certain influential academics and leadership became favoured. And the argument used, and it was came mainly out of Harvard Business School, was the idea that managers manage the status quo and leaders lead change. Um, right. That's taught in many business schools. Oddly, I would question that and we might get a bit of time later to talk about that but yeah okay i like that sort of um i, I like the, the the walkthrough of some of the history leading to to where we are now and some of the thinking about it and it gives me a bit of assurance around my my perception of a narrative that we see out there good, it also, <laughs> good. It also pretty much ticks every box that we talk about on a regular basis so we quite often talk about the history that shapes some of the ideas that are influential now so we get all excited about that and also, I think very specifically, um, I, act, I as you know, as, as some of you know, I'm on Twitter and I managed to get into a bit of an argument with total stranger about <laughs> management and leadership because they were defining management as this terrible, you know, managers are all terrible controlling people and leaders are all inspirational and amazing. I was like, yes. <laughs> not sure that's helpful to anyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, will, we will definitely get to that conversation, I hope. Yeah. Um, just before we do, it would be really helpful to understand, I know... Um, a lot of the material that you've uh, helpfully produced to students like me is around taking a critical perspective or a critical approach to uh, considering managing change, leading change. Um, could you explain a little bit about what that is uh, for those that haven't come across it before and why it's really important that we take a critical eye to the field of organisational change? Yes, I'd be happy to. And I think, Jane, we've met in person and uh, I, I should say, sometimes people think Mark calls himself critical. He, he's a sort of obnoxiously critical, but it's certainly not in that sense. It's more in a scholarly sense that critique excites me and other scholars. So the way I explain it in workshops is universities are involved in three major activities, teaching, research and scholarship. If we look at teaching, it's about disseminating existing knowledge. If we look at research, it's about gathering new knowledge. Scholarship is is what really floats my boat. And scholarship is all about critically interpreting knowledge. So critically interpreting knowledge. So um, 
universities, their main income streams come either from teaching and the, the fees that students pay or from research um, and the research funding that they bring in. And they are very big income streams. Most academics would tell you that a good teacher, a good researcher does scholarship as part of those two activities. I would argue we, we need more scholarship. We really do. I made a decision to spend my career as a scholar, not as a researcher. And although I taught in my early years, I didn't do a lot of teaching subsequently. So coming back to your question, Jane, I'm going on a bit. Um, I'm driven by the idea of critically interpreting existing knowledge. So a lot of the stuff that's taught in business schools and delivered by consultants, we just need to ask some awkward questions around that. And in my new textbook, I've dropped the word critical and I've moved towards questioning. And I think for people listening, they might find that more user-friendly. It's this idea that a bit like the, the young child sometimes asks us the awkward why question, I think we in our organisational lives need to ask sometimes the awkward questions which take a good organisation forward. So it's been an interesting journey. I would have loved if some universities could have majored on scholarship. I think they could make a huge contribution to the world of work if we could have people just saying, well, does that really stack up? Does that theory, does that 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 sort of um, sacred mantra, does it really merit it or is it just a sort of word of mouth thing certain assertive academics have pushed and everyone's believed so it's been an interesting journey but i see critique as crucial in terms of how organizations change and how they evolve more generally i think that's um it's certainly when and, and you're right we have met met in person and, and it was that point that i think resonated with the group we were talking to particularly how can we make sure that somehow we're questioning the theories and the research enough that then they become refined and, and revisited such that they can then, you know, potentially be used with more confidence and effectively. Do you, do you think it is also important for practitioners and organisations to take a more critical approach? And uh, do you have any ideas about how uh, practitioners can take a more critical approach Yes, um, very much so. So a lot of my work, it was working inside organisations with groups of practitioners and questioning um, certain things and then encouraging them to be critical and questioning. Um, and as I, as I say, I think that's really important. Um, I, I can share with you now or at some point, I challenge some of the, the most respected ideas about the idea of Cotter of leading change using eight steps and also the idea that 70% of all change initiatives fail. Um, that's the sort of thinking I like to feed into organisations with the, the big caveat that you have to be careful because sometimes it's the most senior people in an organisation who are espousing these beliefs. So um, use the knowledge wisely, but I really think it has a, a healthy role to play in a good organisation. Yes, you mentioned um, you mentioned there uh, sort of a couple of the what would be considered quite, I guess, at certain at certain points of, of history, very mainstream concepts and models in organisational change, like Cotter's theory of Cotter's eight steps uh, to managing change. Um, and you mentioned questioning that. Um, is that something you uh, is that something you feel has come out of taking a critical perspective? And could you tell maybe share with the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yes, it did. It, um, yeah. Where the Cotter critique came from was I was writing these textbooks, and they would have um, a dozen chapters in them. And each time I got to the leading change chapter, I would go into this emotional state where I got quite worked up and I could feel my blood pressure going up. And something didn't feel right. So one of the luxuries academics have, which practitioners don't, is I have, I have the time just to sit at my desk and pour over the literature and then write up my critical overview of what somebody said. 
So with Cotter, his, he did a paper for Harvard Business Review that some listeners will certainly have encountered, leading change, why transformation efforts fail. He did that way back in 95, and then in 96, he did a book. And many may have seen the book, Leading Change. And if you go to any university, that the book is still very much on the university library shelves and the um, paper is still referenced on MBAs and various postgraduate courses. But I wasn't convinced by it. So I began to look and trace back over all Cotter's earlier works what evidence informed the eight steps. And I was shocked there was no evidence. There really wasn't. So that, that was um, I should add, no empirical evidence. He doesn't include references at the end of his book, which is, is quite weird uh, for a book that academics reference. Um, but there, were no, there was no way of knowing that if you followed those eight steps, your change would be successful. Um, as I got deeper into it, though, some of it began to trouble me. He talks, and some will know of this, about... Um, creating a sense of urgency and manufacturing visible crises. And his thinking is, um, uh, I, I made a note of this. Um, so if I give you a bit of cottage, I'll give people a flavour of it. Visible crises can be enormously helpful in catching people's attention and pushing up urgency levels. Conducting business as usual is very difficult if the building seems to be on fire. But in an increasingly fast-moving world, Waiting for a fire to break out is a dubious strategy. And in addition to catching people's attention, a sudden fire can cause a lot of damage. I was profoundly troubled by that quote in this book that's referenced by many academics and it informs much practice. It is, in fact, I get the idea of the urgency, but the idea of manufacturing it to get people to do the things you want to do. What troubles me, I, I'm 57, so I'm in like the third stage of my life, but there are young managers and leaders of tomorrow who are being taught from that book to do that sort of thing. And I just thought I need to shout. So I did. And I had a paper published with a sexy title, Leading Changes, Why Transformation Explanations Fail. A lovely play on words. And um, it's yeah, been downloaded many, many thousands of times, which if nothing else is good for my ego. But more importantly... I put out a message that this isn't right. We have a responsibility to challenge what is being taught and in some cases what has been practiced in organisations. Many of my screams don't get heard, but thankfully that one did. And then the other one that I mentioned was I was working with practitioners going back a decade and a half and they would ask me, Hey, Mark, I'm enjoying this workshop, but I as I understand it, 70% of all change initiatives fail. And I'd look to Frieda or Fred and I'd say, yeah, unfortunately, Harvard Business School tell us that. And it was always a downer for practitioners and it was a downer for me. And so, again, over time, I had the luxury to go over the literature and have a look at this, this popularly cited notion that 70% of all change initiatives fail. And I found when I went through the literature, there wasn't any evidence to support that, although many practitioners to this day would cite it many academics would cite it there was no evidence so I had a paper published in the journal of change management do 70% of all organizational change initiatives really fail I knew the answer to the question but <laughs> that was my hook in and again um, that paper has been uh, has been um, referenced many many times and downloaded many many times which has been gratifying and it in a small way has influenced the field. The thing that you don't get from the paper was um, academics get excited by papers because they're reviewed by um, their um, peers. And one of the reviewers was one of the um, people involved in the paper, let's say. And so I had this suspicion that perhaps there was this body of evidence, but there wasn't. Um, so let's, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. How interesting! That's um, that's that's really interesting, and I echo your your sort of what what seems like a bit of a visceral reaction to um, that call to create a crisis to to spur change. I mean, I, about I, from a non academic perspective, I, I hadn't been aware of that section of that book specifically, um, but it strikes me, you know, in my own words, as ethically dubious or, or morally doubtful. Um, is my James. immediate response to it. 
James, if I could just chip in, there will be some perhaps listening who've got a copy of Cotter's Leading Change. And it doesn't take a long time to read, but if you read it critically, there are all sorts of little clues in there and it, it's worth doing it. And then seeing how that shifted a lot of thinking in organisations in a profound way and that influence still lives on. My other yeah. case for writing the paper was, though, that Professor Cotter did a follow-up to the um, 96 book in 2012. And some people slap me down and say, ah, yes, Mark, but he's updated it. But if people look at the 2012 version, he didn't change a word in the body of the text. He just added a new really? And what he said was, he says to himself, I can't quote him verbatim, but he says, whilst a lot's changed in the world between 96 and 2012, the body of this book still remains as relevant as it did back then. And again, wait, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's marketing over substance or something Stuff like that. around gender, around ethics. The world's yeah. changed in quite profound ways. You can't say it's still like it was in 96. It's a book yeah. on change. How fascinating. Yeah, that's good. I've, I've got um, I've got a follow uh, a follow up question, which is kind of going somewhere slightly different with this. Um, so we we spoke at the beginning of that piece before we we jumped into to look at um Cotter in a bit more detail about um critical thinking in itself. And I guess one of the things you said was that sometimes it's leaders who hold these views of organizations that are potentially slightly intractable and things like that. If you were speaking to a change practitioner, which, which you do in organizations or people in change functions in, in organizations, um, how, could you, how could you help them explain the advantages of critical thinking and using critical thinking in, in designing change processes to their leadership, if that makes sense? What, what are the, the simple messages about the importance of this and the, the benefits of having adopted a critical approach uh, prior to, to shaping your approach to change, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, I've shared two Eurekas. I'll share one more Eureka, and it Lovely. would ride the distinction between um, leadership, management, and command. And um, organizations don't talk a lot about command unless they're emergency services um, or the military. Mm. Um, but it, it, it's out there. Anyway, the reason I, I come to your question with that in mind is I was influenced by Keith Grint did a lovely overview where he differentiated management leadership and command. And he said that um, manage, management was really about managing processes. Leadership was about asking questions and command was about offering answers. Have you got mm. that? So an interesting thinking around leadership, management, and command. My fear is a lot of what is we're being told in organizations is leadership, is actually command. It's that JDI we touched on a few minutes ago. Yeah. Whereas what would benefit organizations if you believe in what Keith Grint was writing about and what I write about at length? is we need leaders who ask questions. So rather than Frida or, or, or Fred saying, just do it, it would be great if they could say, Jane, James, give me your input. So it, yeah. what I'm trying to get to is I really think the organisations would benefit from that. I, I appreciate you can't always have a debate and what's going on in the world at the moment. We're in a command era. We're, we, command is very much around us. And I don't think it is necessarily the time to have the debate. But my fear in organisations is for years, they just kept telling people to do it. And sometimes good people were being railroaded into doing things that they didn't believe were in the best interests of the goals of their organisation. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, thank you for that. And, and I love that distinction between leadership and command and, and the role of questioning in leadership. It, it feels almost in, in that context that leadership is almost a sort of a sifting exercise where you need to fill up with as much insight as you can and sift through it and empower people to, to put into that in, in sort of sifting process. world, that is where it's at. But it's also, as I tell you, it sounds heretical, the idea of the leader asking questions, you know. But yeah. Why not try something different? We're having a conversation today around change, aren't we? <laughs> yes, indeed. And of course, in, into all of that, I mean, we, it's not a subject for today, but, but that leads into all the sort of individual emotional response to change and ego and the difficulty mm. in, in not being right and the difficulty in not being a commander. And we see that at a global level um, yes. at the minute. 
Yes. Um, yeah, and and so so with that, uh, do you, do you think things like the the concept of humble inquiry sit within that? Is that a phrase you're aware of? And and some of Edgar Schein's work and, and the power of listening and things like that. Do you think that's a, a core leadership skill at the minute? Um, yeah, as I think we touched upon, leadership is highly context dependent. So I think it does depend a bit on the context. I, mm-hmm. I I'm personally interested in humility and ego. And uh, just an aside, I. I remember turning to one of my friends, a professor at my institution, and saying, I'm trying to practice a program of humility. And he was a lovely friend. And he turned around to me and he said, I don't think that has a place in the university. <laughs> That's great fun. <laughs> Which was a beautiful answer because, um, yes. as I say, I'm in like the third age, the first stage of my life, and I'm doing a lot of reflecting at the moment. And when I reflect back, I'd have to admit, there's a lot of ego in academia. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Well, it, in, in so many aspects of life. Um, if we then go back and think, uh, I guess, a bit more broadly about organizational change as a, a bit of a field, what do you think the biggest issues are or the challenges are at the minute? Does it does it come down to this command thing? Is it due to sort of the global context that we're in? What are some of the, the big challenges people facing change or, or looking to implement change or, or up against? In 20 words. <laughs> yeah, or 10 maybe. How about that? <laughs> I'm just, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, it, it's, it's a pertinent question. Uh, again, I, one of my learnings around change is it is very processual. It's very dynamic. It's very contextual. So one of the joys of working with organizations over two decades was the big issues vary from organization to organization. So yeah. there were some overlaps between organizations. There were a unique set of challenges. So I would um, be mindful about it. If you said, well, well, that given, what would you say? I, I think we've touched on one of them already. Um, I think the disparaging of management and the privileging of leadership has been problematic for organizations. I uh, the students in business schools today, in the past, they would have hoped to get jobs as managers. Now they would hope to get jobs as leaders. But I still think we need the managing of processes on any effective organisational change. We need, let's say, the stocks and the stores to be in place to support the people who are doing the stuff. We need the systems to work. We need the payrolls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that would be one big issue. A second one I've hinted at, and it's it's stuck with me over the decades. I don't like the word resistance in the context of change. It's such a loaded word. It depicts anybody who isn't following the leader as some sort of agitator. And I'm sure many listening will have had experiences of where they felt a change wasn't going to benefit their organisation. We need to find ways of tapping into that. And I think... um, a better word is responses. It's not so loaded. Equally, I got interested. There's a literature around change readiness. And I think the so-called resistance needs to be seen in the context of how ready a particular organization is for change. Universities are going through major change at the moment and whether or not they're ready for it, I, I don't know. Whereas some sort of, say, financial sector organizations have a very much a culture of change. So there's issues there. I think power and politics, I wish when I reflect back, there'd be more coverage of that in organisations. I did many workshops in residential centres and what was great was looking at the doors, what the other tutors were delivering on to their clients. And uh, I never once saw a workshop on power and politics in the workplace. And yet anyone uh, who's worked in organisation knows it's rife there. And then one fourth one. I think we've fudged the evaluation of organisational change. It's been difficult for academics to research because it is a dynamic and processual process. But when I've talked candidly with practitioners and I've sort of asked them, can can you tell me how change has been evaluated in your organisation? They've often said it hasn't been thoroughly evaluated. We know about the programme uh, the project reviews at the end of a change program, but um, a lot of organisational change, it's like it happens. There's a lot of industry there and then the world moves on. So they're, they're four issues, but there are many more out there, James. That, um, that's a lovely introduction to just some of the many things that frustrate me about when I'm certainly when 
I'm in the workplace, but also uh, when reading the material. So thank you. I think that's a, an excellent list. Yes. Um, I and also has literally lit every button of frustration at the same time. So now I'm also, <laughs> of all the times I've been frustrated. Um, <laughs> I, I want to pick up on the bit that uh, you, we've mentioned a couple of times now about this shift from change management to change leadership, and and a little bit what I perceive as the fetish, almost the fetishization of leadership um, that I see in the workplace at the moment. That's a it's a very um, it's what everyone seems to aspire to be, irrespective of their role, level, um, and leadership skills seem to be coming to the fore at the same time. Now, you, interestingly, you've, um, you raise a question about that, and I think you've published some um, notebook series, and you raise that question about the shift on the focus. Um, what, what's going on there? And do you, do you see that shift from focus on change management to change leadership continuing? Do you think that will carry on in the future? Um, that's very much where my head and heart is at the moment. So again, I have this luxury of like a 30-year um, overview of how the debates moved. And I started off as somebody writing books on managing change and running workshops on managing change. And then it shifted to leading change. And I, I reflected that in my writing. And I began to think, did I miss the memo? <laughs> We get so many emails these days, but did I miss the memo telling me we're going to shift? And I thought, no, I don't think I did. And then I thought, well, did I miss the big study where it was empirically proven that this idea of leading change would be more beneficial to the interests of organisations and managing change? And I was able to do something, again, a sort of academic luxury. I wrote a monograph um, which was published by Routledge in 2016 called The Leadership of Organisational Change. I, I'm keen to sell my works here today, but if anybody reads it, it's probably one of the driest things I ever wrote. But anyway, um, monographs are often academics talking to each other. And I remember my office buddy, a, a lovely woman, Catherine, I popped into the office and she said, hello, Mark, how's your monologue coming along? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I thought she caught it so well. So, um, I did this monologue, would be more honest, on um, organisational change. But I looked at 35 years of writing about the leadership of change and transformation and went over all of the literature I could find. It's, it is quite an epic piece of work. And this is deeply troubling. There isn't the body of strong evidence to support the shift that most organizations have gone for. One of the scary things I found is there was a handbook for leaders of universities leading change uh, published in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, and they were citing the evidence as Cotter's leading change. <laughs> I thought, wow, something's gone wrong here. <laughs> Um, and, and yet politics and power aren't an important aspect of, of what we do, right? I mean, that, that oh, smacks of all of that stuff, the irony. Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot of these debates <laughs> sort of loop back into each other. So uh, yeah. I went on, on this uh, lovely little journey, and I, I'm still on it, to be honest. I, I couldn't find the evidence. Some of my later papers, when I went to um, seek publication for review process in journals, the reviewers would say there must be evidence of such a big shift that the evidence must be there. Go back and look harder. And it was, it was like I wasn't going to find it. I was confident that there wasn't a body of evidence to support this. James, at the beginning of this conversation, used the word narrative. What happened was mm. a narrative switch. And Jane, you mentioned the notebooks. They're slightly weird in that they were self-published, which... I just needed to get some of this out of my head on, on paper. So, so I pushed them out at a, a very low price. And I just wanted to say, well, look, if anybody asks me when I'm, I'm doddering about in my care, <laughs> I did try to tell people that something's wrong here. So I, I sort of squared it with myself. But to give people the essence of what I learned or what I believe, to be honest, there was a shift from change management to change leadership and it was, I can't prove this. I believe it was orchestrated. So if you go back to the um, late 70s, early 80s, America had been very much pro-management. And then Japan came along and stole a lot of their markets. They were in dire straits. And managers 
um, management went out of fashion. There were newspaper articles saying, let's get rid of let's get rid of management. What we need is leadership. And I have a suspicion that that narrative gripped the imagination. Then when I look back at the 70% failure paper, I think that was trying to play into that narrative. And all of this implied that management and managing change might be failing, but leadership and leading change will succeed. And I think yeah. that narrative switch that has had such a profound effect on not just private sector organisations, but public services. This has been big for the health services, been big for education. It hasn't just been one country, it's been across the world. And it's a debate I tried to provoke. The notebooks were my very crude um, attempt just to put down a marker. And then I stepped away from it for a year and I thought, we sometimes, particularly academics, are good at deluding ourselves. And all I would share with uh, the two of you and anyone else listening is a year on, I still feel I want to provoke this debate and I'll find other ways to do it. There were offers of monographs I could have gone, but I didn't want to go down that road for a couple of reasons. One was I didn't want to constrain myself. I wanted to write very, very freely and just get it out of my head and my system because I've been living with it too intimately. So that was one of the reasons. The other reason was I thought I might have gone mad. And so uh, <laughs> I didn't want to tarnish a monograph series, which is highly respected in my world with, with my mad musings. But a year on, I think there's a debate that would be so useful. And so it was one of the reasons I was delighted to have a chance to talk with the two of you today. And I think it's, I mean, it's interesting because both James and I have transitioned in our careers recently and certainly the driver for me, and I think some of it, we've talked about James and I on the podcast before. So my driver was that I felt I couldn't speak openly about some of the challenges in my sector because I had a loyalty to the organisation I worked for and I didn't want that, you know, to reflect badly on them. And I, I understand your comment about, you know, publishing a notebook and being self-published. But at the same time, there is this need. I, I felt a very visceral need to be able to say, I'm not sure this process is working for the sector at the moment. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. that to be on my head and in my name rather than anywhere else. And exactly like you described, I would like to be doddering around somewhere at some point and feel like at least I tried. Yes. Um, so I massively recognize that. And I also think, I think there's, I, I, I think, you know, if you ever need any help raising this question and having this discussion, we will continue to help you. Because I think <laughs> really strongly that leadership there's, there's a couple of really odd things that feels like it's going on around the way that it's used in, in business education and business sector at the moment. For me, one is around um, organizations are using it as an excuse to grow the training uh, group of people they can train because they're basically now doing sort of, you know, leadership development for seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds, mm. so forth. And, they, and they're taking it directly from the leadership. And nothing, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But it is it is about this idea that leadership is important at the expense of appropriate management, control, pace, organization. That's always what the implication is. The implication is always as long as you're inspirational and can guide the future and can ask the good questions, no one actually needs to manage the process. And and I think that's a really dangerous idea, particularly when there's no real evidence around it. And I think the other thing um, that you raised, which I think is a great point. Just a great point is this this odd sort of meta sort of societal or certainly business wide approach to it that feels somehow, if not orchestrated, uh, exploited by an opportunity to both hang all the responsibility on the individual leaders, which feels somehow wrong because that's not how success is. Success for an organisation is not just their leader. That is not you know that's not where it sits. And I think there's something about also the way CEOs get hung out to dry when organizations fail and boards somewhat excuse themselves by saying, well, it was the CEO, so we'll just get rid of him, get him to step aside. And then the organization is effectively clean. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that works in tandem with the leadership narrative as well, which is frustrating at best because I don't think it's necessarily what the truth is. Do you, um, do you think... I mean, if I was, if you were talking to practitioners right now whose uh, bosses are saying to them, look, we really want to do more leadership 
Um, we, we want you to work only with the leadership team. We want you to get them to be doing more leader-like development. What advice would you have for sort of change management practitioners sort of trying to change, challenge that narrative a little bit and saying, you know, we need to also focus on the other skills? It, it's a really t- tricky one. And, and, and thank you for your comments. I, I think it's such a dominant narrative. I've actually struggled um, in my challenging of it. I, I've been quite surprised. I, I am a, a critical scholar, but I've been surprised how this what we need here is leadership narrative has gripped the imagination um the reason i i've gone all hesitant on you is i think it's that politics thing it is very dangerous for a, a decent employee to challenge the dominant narrative um so I, 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 it's a lovely sunny day here at the moment and i'm in a sunny place and i'm enjoying talking to you but I, I don't want to say go out and challenge the dominant narrative. All, all, I, all I would offer is if, and the two of you said you've had some suspicions and I have, if people have suspicions, think about them, talk about them with others, because it might not be serving the best interests of the organisation. Um, as you say, there's only so much one woman, one man can do in terms of leading an organisation. My learning has been if an organisational change is successful, it will largely be down to the people who make up that organisation and what they do. Um, so I, I, I don't discount the input of the leaders, but it is about the organisational members. And um, I think that's the best I can do. I, I don't want to stir it too much because I, I, I just think sometimes good people speak out and it doesn't always serve their workplace interests as well as it should. <laughs> I, I echo that a lot. And, and you know, people talk about things like whistleblower training and all this kind of stuff. But but nonetheless, there is a need for a bit of a word of caution around that stuff, just in yeah. terms of self-interest. And and I guess with that, you know, permeating this entire conversation is the, the importance of a self and maintaining the self. And we can want to change the world, but we need to look after ourselves as well. And I think that comes into this here. Yeah. Um, and part of that then is about managing that duality of, of what we want to achieve and looking after ourselves and then managing some of those conflicts. I think that's an important thing in some of these instances. Um, I'm afraid, Mark, that we are getting to the end of our time. Uh, it's, it's gone rather quickly um, and it's been good fun and I'd love to do it again and explore some more. Um, but but just before we wrap up, though, can we, um, can we hear a little bit from you about maybe some thoughts on what listeners could um, maybe read or where they could find some of your work and what they could do just to learn a little bit more about I guess, organisational change and some of your, your views on the field at the minute. Of course, yes. Um, just tempering my my sort of um, uh, stay quiet, what I would encourage um, anyone listening to do is build their own models. I think literature theories um, and models are really just explanations. When I was working with organisations, I encourage people to build their own and I'd, I'd like to leave people with that message that, it doesn't have to be a Harvard Business School model. They can build a model which is more context-specific to their unique circumstances. So that would be my positive message. In terms of um, uh, following up, and thank you for asking. My pleasure. I, I, uh, I, I'm not really on social media. I try to do Twitter to the best of my abilities, and I, I've got the sexy, I don't know what they call it, a handle. A handle, yeah, that's it. Handle and it's at leading changes, which for anyone who's followed what we've been rabbiting on about should make some sense. <laughs> I also have a WordPress site called, it's got a sexy title this, I hope everyone's listening carefully, woodendecay.com. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yes, and um, I haven't been doing a lot on it. I've been having a gap here, to be honest, this last year, but I, I will be putting stuff out on that. And there's a lot of back stuff that if Anyone wants to hear any more of my ramblings, they'll find it on there. I also keep my Amazon author page up to date. So any sort of books I've mentioned, the easiest way to find it is via that. And one final offering, if anybody does want a a book chapter, I'm always happy to share a a, a book chapter in a Word file with them if they get in touch. I'm not here primarily to sell anything. I'd, I'd really just promote certain ways of thinking. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. And, and that's very kind of you. Um, and what we'll do when we when we share this podcast, we'll, we'll promote um, Twitter, we'll promote your WordPress page. 
uh, Amazon, all that kind of stuff as well, just to, to spread the word. Um, Excellent. Can't be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, all right. Well, I guess it's just time to say goodbye. So uh, thank you very much for me. It was a genuinely uh, fantastic and uh, engaging and entertaining conversation. So thank you for me. Yeah. And a massive thank you for me. Um, ever since I heard you speak, it's really shaped and framed the way I've been thinking about this topic. So uh, I really appreciate it. And it's been really great to be able to ask you the questions firsthand as well. So thank you. And if if I could just say thank you to you, I often say in workshops, if at the end of a workshop I've enjoyed myself, there's a good chance that those in the room have. And I've enjoyed talking to both of you. So thank you for asking me and thank you for carrying my message out there. It's good to hear some people here by screams. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks, Frank. Bye. Okay, so you are back in the room with us. That was our conversation with Dr. Mark Hughes. We talked about all kinds of exciting stuff to do with organizational change. Um, Jen, do you have any specific takeaways or, or things that you want to reflect on based on that conversation? Sure. I mean, I'm reeling a little bit because I feel like we covered a lot of ground. There was a lot there, wasn't there? Yeah, a lot to think about. But I guess, um, actually, weirdly, the thing that I've taken from it is the importance of having your own view on things. So, you know, obviously... Mark's a, a hugely well-read and, and academic scholar. But ultimately what he's done is read stuff and thought, hmm, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to dig. And I think sometimes we read stuff and think, oh, someone else must have thought that and checked that. Or someone else must know that that's right for them to say it. And we just ignore our own inner concern or critic. So I think trusting trusting your inner critic is a really good message to take from that for me. Yeah, and, and you know, that's something that comes up in some other things that we, we speak about in other times, which is about trying to get a plurality of ideas and a plurality of thought into your own practice so that you can form opinions. And, and I think that fits within the critical thing. So, so I'd really echo that. Um, I guess one thing I'd like to call out is I thought there were some great little quotes in there and, and I've, I've not got them all to hand, but some of them really stood out to me. And one of the ones that I really liked was that really simple definition of organizational change at the beginning which he quoted which i think was from patrick dawson up in aberdeen and he said um the move from a known state to an unknown state and i like things that are really concise like that and and i think that really sums up change and and captured in that nugget is all the complexity summed up in that word unknown um and the dynamic nature of it through through that movement piece so so i really like that that sense of the move from the from a known state to an unknown state so so i guess that's one of my big takeaways nice yeah very good all right well let us wrap it up here i think that's uh, another episode uh, another exploration of organizational change it's a subject that we obviously really enjoy um and we'll be back with you in another week for another episode i'm not sure what it'll be but i'm sure it'll be exciting bye hi thanks for listening to this episode of the world of work podcast to learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.